My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Those are verses 8 through 11 of Psalm 57, which along with Psalm 56 form the psalms appointed today, Monday, May the 3rd, twenty. 21. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. We're continuing in the Book of Wisdom, and then also today we're going to be in Colossians and also in the Gospel of Luke. So remember, the Book of Wisdom um, is an apocryphal book, which means that it's not part of the canon of the uh, Bible, of the Old Testament. It was, has always been looked on as something from which uh, people could profit, even by the um, by the Jews, still look at these books as books by which men could profit by reading them, although we don't hold them at the same level that we hold the canon of Scripture. And so, as I've said before, that when you read these publicly in worship, in the Anglican sense, when you read a normal Old Testament lesson, you end that lesson with the words, um, the word of the Lord. And the response of the people is, thanks be to God. When you read from the Book of Wisdom, which is not very often, when you read from the Book of Wisdom or Maccabees or any of the other apocryphal books, the way that you end that reading is to say, here ends the lesson. And there's no response from the congregation because we don't see it as strictly the word of the Lord. But we believe it's written by Solomon because it bears so much um, familiarity, so much relationship to um, uh, other wisdom literature that was compiled by Solomon, such as Proverbs and also in Ecclesiastes. So here in Wisdom 9, 1, and then verses 7 to 18, what we got is Solomon is being commanded by the Lord to um, build a temple upon the holy mount and an altar in the city wherein thou dwellest, a resemblance of the holy tabernacle, which thou hast prepared from the beginning. So one of the things to understand about Jewish thought and the way that they consider all things, including the tabernacle, but also the world itself, is that that it is as Plato would have said it's a, it's a shadow this world and the things that we build in it are a shadow of the perfected forms that have been there since the beginning what they say is that the torah itself was the blueprint for creation so if you start with the laws then the world falls into place around those laws and so that's exactly the way uh, Solomon is speaking of this. He's saying, you've commanded me to build a temple on your holy mount and an altar in the city where you dwell, a resemblance of the holy tabernacle, which thou hast prepared from the beginning. And so to, to say, oh, only Jews think that way, that well, that would not make very good sense of the book of Revelation, for instance, because what does it say in the book of Revelation? After God destroys the good creation that he had, what happens next? What happens next is is the the new creation, comes down from heaven and overlays this earth that's been destroyed. And so a perfected creation comes down out of heaven. And so Solomon says, you've commanded me to build a temple like the one that's in heaven. And, and it, he doesn't have to guess it what that's going to look like because God already told him what that would look like. He gave the plans for all that to Moses when he gave Torah in, uh, at, on Mount Sinai. 
Remember, because he gives the plans, he tells who's going to build it, he tells the materials, he tells everything about it. And so it's all given directly from God. It's, it's, it's um, directly from the mouth of God to Moses, who then writes all of that in Torah. And so now when the temple is being built, there's a, a perfected thing, because the tabernacle was always meant to be a temporary thing. Now the, the temple obviously is a temporary thing too, but it's a, it's a longer form of temporary than the tabernacle was intended to serve as. But the tabernacle served for a very long time. It served from the time the people were in the wilderness when it was built after the Exodus. It served all the way through the period of the judges, all the way through Saul, all the way through David, all the way up to Solomon. We're talking about maybe a thousand years or so that that tabernacle was the place where the people worshipped. It was the place where they came to meet with God and make their sacrifices. And then the permanent structure, permanent with quotes around it, was built first by Solomon and then in a later time in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. So that those two temples um, are the ones that, that have existed. The one that was destroyed after AD 70, for instance, that was not the Solomonic temple because remember that was destroyed in the Babylonian exile. So what you've got here, we're looking back and Solomon says, I, I, you know, he is grateful that God has asked him to do this. And then he goes on to say, well, you've prepared that holy tabernacle from the beginning. And wisdom was with you, which knoweth thy works, and was present when thou madest the world, and knew what was acceptable in thy sight and right in thy commandments. And if you go forward from that to the first part of the Gospel of John, remember what he says is the word was with God and the word was God. And he was there in the beginning when all things are created. And so wisdom personified is Jesus. And so when when Solomon is speaking of wisdom here, he's speaking of the wisdom of God who is Christ himself, although Solomon wouldn't have known that. But what he says there is is that that if you're going to ask me to build this thing, send her out of your, send her wisdom out of thy holy heavens and from the throne of thy glory that being present she may labor with me that I may know what's pleasing to thee. For she knows and understands all things, and shall lead me soberly in my doings, and preserve me in her power. So shall my works be acceptable, and then I shall judge people righteously, and be worthy to sit in my Father's seat. For what is man that he can know the counsel of God? Or who can think what the will of the Lord is? Solomon knew that it was impossible for him as a human being, without the aid of God, to know what would be pleasing to God, and to, to do and execute righteousness on the earth as a king, that God had put him in this, in this very important role in, in representing judgment to the people and righteousness and mercy. And so he knew that, it, that in order to do that job well, wisdom needed to come and be with him. He says, hardly do we guess or write at things that are upon the earth, and with labor do we find the things that are before us, but the things that are in heaven, who hath searched out? And so what he's saying is there's only one there. There's only thing that I need. I need wisdom. And that wisdom isn't earthly wisdom. He said it's the wisdom that was with you when everything was created. And so that would be Jesus. And then in, for us, we can seek that same wisdom. And, and it's, we find it in Jesus. And the, what, the way we receive it, then, is through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our lives when we accept Him as Lord and Savior, when we acknowledge the truth 
that Jesus is the only one, only name given under heaven by which a man might be saved, then we plead with him and we ask, and he will graciously give us the power of his Holy Spirit. So the wisdom that was manifest to Solomon (coughs) can be made manifest and given to us as well through the power of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our lives, it's been poured out on all flesh. It's the greatest gift we could ever begin to imagine, and, but we have to rely upon that. We rely too much, too often on our own wisdom and our own understanding. And so what Solomon is saying is, is that in order to do things, do God's work God's way, requires God's spirit and God's wisdom. And that's exactly right. And so we tend to operate too often from our own understanding. And, and from a non-heavenly view of things. We have to see things from his perspective. And we have to learn to lean on him in all things for understanding of all things. <coughs> and we see that with this, um, Jesus is invited to a Pharisee's house, and he comes into the home, and he's a, uh, at this point, by this time in Jesus' life, he's somebody who's, uh, who is well, well known. He's somebody who has who's begun to bring disciples into his orbit. He is somebody who has done extraordinary things and done a lot of teaching. He's been recognized along the way by Pharisees and others as a teacher, for instance, who has come from God, which is what Nicodemus said of him when he comes in John 3. So here we have this Pharisee who invites Jesus into his home, and, and when he does, because he's an important person, you know, I've said this before, that, that important people, when they came to dine at, at people's houses, the, the custom was to, to make that uh, available, for that conversation to be available. You might do it to, to others who could come and stand around the, the quote, windows of the home and listen to the conversation. They wouldn't typically participate in the conversation, but but it was it was a mark of hospitality, but also sort of how important you are that you had an important person in your home. And so here, this Pharisee has invited Jesus, and, and obviously then he has done what is common in that world, and that is in opening that, that meeting up for others to, to sort of eavesdrop on. And we're told that a woman of the city who was a sinner, and we're pretty sure that that means she's a prostitute, um, came. <clears throat> she learned that he was reclining at table, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And that alabaster flask of ointment would have been the thing that she would have been a perfume for her that would have basically said to the world, I'm available, but this is not cheap stuff that she's got here. But, but it, would, it would have been the signal and the enticement to men to be her customers, to sleep with her. And so what she does is she takes that and she begins to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head, kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. This is lavish, lavish sort of repentance that's going on here. Now, she did. we don't see that she says anything, but this woman is weeping in the presence of Jesus. And she is doing this thing. She lets down her hair, which you would only do with your husband, for instance. She lets that down, and she is kissing his feet and anointing him with the ointment and drying his feet with the hair of her head because she didn't have anything else to do. And I believe it's because, as Jesus is going to show us in a minute, it's because that she sees him being incredibly disrespected by the man who has invited him to be in this place. Simon thinks to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answers him it says and he's saying this to himself he didn't say this to jesus he says simon i have something to say to you and he answered say it teacher 
And then he tells a little story. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owned five, owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they couldn't pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one do you think will love him more? And Simon answered, well, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said, good job, man, good job. You got that right, first guess. Um, and then he says, but you're not seeing anything clearly here. You didn't understand that I was talking about you and her. He says, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. She's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. From the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Basic hospitality is what Jesus is saying here. That, that you didn't offer me basic hospitality. That you should offer any guest who comes out into your home. And hospitality is a cardinal virtue in Judaism. In fact, what they say is, is that, that if God were at your home and somebody else came and needed hospitality, you were to leave God and go to that person and give them hospitality. That's more important. And they take that from Abraham, who is outside in his tent after his circumcision. And suddenly these men come up. And he le- they see that before that he was with God and that he leaves God to be with these men and give hospitality to these men. And it's perfectly okay for him to have done so. Hospitality is the most important thing you can do. And so this guy has greatly disrespected Jesus, and this woman has seen this. It's broken her heart because she knows who Jesus is. And so she has lavishly made up for the lack of hospitality that this Pharisee has given. And even after all of this, he doesn't say, you're right. No, he doesn't say anything. He look, Jesus looks at the woman and says, your sins are forgiven. And what happens then? They question him and say, who is this who even forgives sins? And he says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Whoever that woman is, is one of the most important people in the New Testament. She gave the hospitality in excess that this guy didn't give at all. And so she has is this incredibly important person. She received the words of forgiveness directly from Jesus, who sees what's in her heart. This Pharisee missed everything that was standing before him, just as Solomon said that we can't judge things right even when we're looking at them. And then in the Colossians lesson, Paul gives words to uh, pretty much every class of human being there and tells them how they ought to live. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything. This pleases the Lord. Father, don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything. Those who are your earthly masters. And then he gives them further instructions. Don't be a, a don't don't just obey those for eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you receive the inheritance of your reward. And then masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. You ain't the ultimate thing. And then says, continue steadfastly in prayer, and at the same time pray for us, that God may open a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. And then tells them how to live. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And then he goes through a list of people 
who have either gone to Colossae or who are going to Colossae or the other churches in that region because this this particular uh, epistle was a, was a circular epistle. It's not addressed directly and only to the people of Colossae. They're intended to pass this on to other churches in the region. And so he, he addresses all these people that he knows who are going to them and then says, give my greetings to all the people in the area here, the ones at Laodicea and the ones to Nympha at her house and the church of the Laodiceans in Heropolis and all these other places. And, and Paul is saying, I want you to welcome, provide hospitality to those who come in the name of Jesus. And that's one of the things that we do. It's one of the ways that we show our love for him is showing love for the brothers and showing love for those whom God has sent. And so we are to greet one another in peace and we're to love one another as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God. But he's given us eyes to see these things and he's given us a mind to know these things. He's given us spirit to discern these things. Let's live from the Spirit today. Let's make a conscious decision to live from His Spirit today.